Well, good morning. I am very happy to be here with you and to be uh, opening up our Bibles in just a moment to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 20. Last week, we celebrated Easter Sunday, and it was a tremendous blessing to be able to gather with my church family, to be able to sing songs together to the Lord, to be able to open up the Scripture. And I'm reminded of a year ago when we were in the throes of, of, of certainly a, a time of uncertainty. We didn't know what COVID was, we didn't know what the virus was, and so we were not able to be together last year. But this year we were able to celebrate, and it made me so very happy. I was able to rejoice with you in the celebration of the resurrection. In terms of the resurrection, it is the most unbelievable, most amazing thing that maybe the Bible claims. That a man who was killed, brutally murdered, got up three days later, without any physician, without any preacher, without any, anybody else coming to intervene, he got up. And it's that reality, it's the reality of the resurrection that we hang everything that we believe about Christianity on. If the resurrection is not true, then we are foolish to be in this building. A few months ago, actually I guess it's been a little over a year ago, uh, I was at the park with my kids and they were riding their bikes around the track and I was walking around the track with them, not able to keep up because they were on bicycles and I was just walking. And as I would walk by, I would pass by a group of teenagers and I didn't know them, they didn't know me, but every time I walked by, it was a group of teenagers mostly made up of, of young ladies. Uh, one was a guy there, and like a lot of guys do around girls, he thought that he would show off a bit. And as he would walk around, he would say something, and I never caught what he would say, but he would say something as he passed me every time. I don't know if it was something about how I couldn't keep up with the kids. I don't know what it was, but he said something repeatedly every time we passed. And so um, I stopped at one point, and I, I just asked, hey, bud, you know, what's, what's going on? You know, what, what are you saying? And he, he got embarrassed, and all the, the people that he was showing off in front of, they started giggling at him and laughing. And I said, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a preacher, and uh, I know you're saying something. And they, they, oh, they guffawed about that because now you've got a guy who's going to talk at you. And I did. But this young man, come to find out, was he claimed to be an agnostic, someone who doesn't know whether or not he should believe in the gospel, whether he should believe in Buddhism, whether he should believe in atheism. He doesn't know what he believes. And so I looked at him and I said, well, what is it 
what is it about Scripture, what is it about the Bible that you find hardest to believe? And almost without missing a beat, he said, well, the resurrection. I mean, you're saying Jesus got up, that he's still alive, which was in a, very, a very astute answer for this young man. I was able to walk him through what Tim shared with last week, and I won't rehash all of it, but there are several theories about what happened to the body of Jesus. Did he die? And did he rise from the grave as we claim? And the answer to that is yes. But other theories that have come out are the disciples stole the body. Another theory is the swoon theory that he actually didn't uh, perish or die on the cross, that he just fainted. And that three days later he got up and marched out on his own strength. And maybe the Pharisees took the body and they hid it so the disciples couldn't take it. But all of those theories, all of those ideas crumble with just the slightest bit of common sense. And as I walk this young man through it, in light of the resurrection story, in light of what we celebrated last Sunday together, this young man, he had no argument against the resurrection. So today, as we prepare to open up our Bibles and look at Matthew 28, understand this is a call that Christ gives the church to be bold. And this is a call that Christ gives the church to go and to tell. This is a call that Christ gives the church as a primary responsibility. And we can be bold and we can proclaim this gospel message, we can tell about Jesus and we can do so without fear because the world has no answer for the resurrection. When we stand upon the foundation, the sure reality that Christ got up from the grave, we can absolutely be bold. So with that, let me go to the text we're going to look in Matthew 28. These are very familiar verses. Let me read verses 16 through 20 to us. Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. And then we're going to dive into these verses. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come to You and we love You and we praise You and we thank You for Your Son, Jesus, who You sent to be our righteousness, to be our sacrifice, to be the first fruits of our resurrection, to be the life that we can enjoy. Thank You for the reality that the world is silenced before the resurrection. And thank You that You give us that good news to go proclaim to this world. I pray that this morning You would so work in our hearts and so work in our lives 
That God, we wouldn't be able to sit in our seats without being compelled, without being motivated to go out of this building and to tell of the glorious resurrection of your Son. Father, I pray that you would embolden every person in this room. And that, Father, we would be able to do this task with confidence. And it's in your Son's name, Jesus, I do ask these things and for his sake. Amen. So these verses, these verses, I'm sure that we've all heard multiple times. These verses tell believers our primary responsibility. The primary task, the primary call for the church is to make disciples. And I do think it's interesting to note here that Jesus, at the end, after his resurrection, he meets with this group of believers, and he doesn't tell the people that your primary responsibility, your primary task is for fellowship. He doesn't say that our primary responsibility is to worship. It's not to grow in knowledge. Baptists, it's not to have potlucks. Our primary responsibility is to make disciples. And that's the reason we're here. That's the reason we're here on earth. Understand this, okay? Grasp this. If the primary responsibility of the church was anything other than making disciples, then Christ would not have left us here on the earth. We would be in heaven to fellowship with believers and to fellowship with the Lord. If it was worship, then we would be in heaven so that we could worship in spirit and truth before God Almighty. But the reason that we are here, that we are left on this earth primarily as of greatest importance is to make disciples. But I fear that even though I've heard these passages so many times, and I've heard this call proclaimed so often, I fear that the church as a whole doesn't know the Great Commission anymore. And there's actual statistics to prove that. Many of you are aware of... Um, the Barna Research Group. They recently put out a question. And this was simply a one-question uh, response that they, that they gave for, or a question they gave people for a response. And it was just this: Have you heard of the Great Commission? Have you heard of the Great Commission? And this was the response. 17%, yes, I know the Great Commission, and here's where it is in the Bible. Only 17%. 25%, yes, I've heard of the Great Commission, but I actually don't know what it is or where it is. I've heard of the Great Commission, but I don't know it. An alarming 6% just said, I'm not sure, but maybe even the most terrifying of all statistics is that 51% of people who proclaim to be Christians, of people who would say that they are evangelical believers, 51% said they don't know what the Great Commission is. This is our primary responsibility. 
And 51% don't know it. What a terrifying, what an alarming thing. So Barna went a little bit further after they got these numbers back, and they thought, well, maybe it's just the term. Maybe they don't know the term. Maybe it's just that it's an outdated phrase. The Great Commission is known by more than the church, but they just don't know the terminology. So they posed the question, or they, what they did is they offered up um, five different verses from Scripture, one of them being the Great Commission. They offered up five different verses, and they said, of these five verses, which one of these five verses would you guess, would you say, is the Great Commission? Which one of these five verses would you say is the primary responsibility of the church? And there were, like I said, there was the Great Commission in it, but there were also stuff when Christ said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. There was also, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. There were things like that that they added into it. And only 37% of church churchgoers could pick out the correct reference. Church, we have lost our primary goal. We have lost sight of what is the primary task for the church. And almost back to back, a Gallup poll was released just this past month. And the Gallup poll says this, that 47% of Americans, this is the first time since, this, uh, since they've been polling, since they've been getting these, these numbers in, only 47%, less than half of total Americans claim to belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Less than 50% of Americans claim to be religious in any, in any kind. Is it any wonder that the United States has slipped into decline when the church doesn't even know its primary responsibility? So what is our task? What is our goal? We've read it. Let's dive into it. And let's see what's being told to us, I believe, from Christ before He left and before He will return. In verse 16, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this verse because this verse is not the primary focus of the Great Commission. But I do think that I would... I would be remiss if I did not mention the gathering of these believers. Now, we don't know exactly when or where this gathering took place. We don't know the hill. We don't know how long after Christ's resurrection. We know that it's after the road to Emmaus which is mentioned in Luke 24, where Christ revealed Himself to some of His disciples as they were on the road. We know that it was after He revealed Himself to Thomas, which was eight days after His resurrection. You read about that in John 20. 
We also know that it was after the, where Christ revealed himself to Peter as he was fishing and after he had kind of started back up his business out there and started getting back to work as a fisherman in John 21. It was after that. We know it's before the ascension, which was 40 days after he rose. So we're not sure. We can speculate maybe three or four weeks after his resurrection. Now, I am not entirely convinced, but I am fairly sure that it might be this meeting that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So there's a couple of his appearances. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me. This could very well be here in the Great Commission where he gathered with the 500. And it mentions the 11. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain in which Jesus directed, but it doesn't necessarily say it was only the 11. It does make sense that the 11 disciples would go with others. It makes sense that Christ would give the primary responsibility to the church to more than just the 11. So it could be the meeting where 500 people are there. And they were there even in questions and in doubts, they gathered together to see Christ. They gathered there because Christ had directed them. Be at this mountain at this time. They had been told there is a place you need to be and there's a time you need to be there. And Even though we don't know it, these 11 certainly knew it and maybe more certainly knew it. And so they gathered. They drew together so that they could see the risen Christ so that they could worship the risen Messiah. They were with each other, gathering together, and it was all about Jesus. And they had questions. They had doubts. It even tells us some of them doubted. But they wanted to see Christ and they wanted to worship. Jesus approached them. He approached them as their king in verse 18. But I think that it's fair to say that in order to fulfill the Great Commission, in our fulfilling of our primary responsibility, it has to start with meeting the Lord at the appointed time in word and prayer with the redeemed. One of the reasons why I fear the Great Commission has fallen from knowledge of people who claim to be believers is because people who profess to be believers have fallen out of the habit of gathering with other believers. 
Hebrews 10, 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are not to neglect the gathering. We are not to neglect pulling together for Christ. We are not to, gather, or we are not to neglect gathering to worship, to be in the Word and to be in prayer. And I do think that many people never bother to go to the lost because they can't even bother to get together with the saved. And that started before COVID. And then we found an excuse. But before COVID came around, we found excuses and it was called a ballpark. We found excuses and it was called lake house. We found excuses and it was called... I was really tired from work. Perhaps we have forgotten that in order to be effective in the world, we must gather together to worship Christ. Effective evangelists always are willing to gather with Christ and with the saved. That will never change. If you neglect your time with believers, then you will certainly neglect your responsibility. That's all I'm going to say on that because it's not the primary focus of the verses, but I felt like if I didn't say it, I would be remiss. So we have the gathering. But not only are they gathered together, they are given a command. They are told to go. And we see the going as it is expressly said to them in verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go! They had gathered to worship their king. They had come to see the risen Christ. They had come because, yes, he really was alive. And church, he is still alive today. They gathered because it was Jesus. And when they gathered, he said, now go. He gave them their primary responsibility. Yes, you're here amongst your king, but I am leaving you in this world so that you will be effective, so that you will go out and so that you will tell, so that you will go into the world and you will meet people and know people who don't know about Christ and you get to stand with them and say, I know a man who died and got up from the grave and he lives to this day and he can bring salvation for you. He can free you from your sins. And that's a pattern in Scripture. In Isaiah, you see the prophet as he has a vision and as he is there before the presence of God and he is in a spot where he is scared out of his mind because God is so amazing and He's so big and He's so grand. And Isaiah is then... In the presence of God, where every person who believes in God should desire to be ultimately, he's terrified because he knows he's sinful. God cleanses him with the coal. And so then you'd sit there and you'd think that God's response would be, okay, you have been made right. Your 
lips are clean. You can stay with me now. But that's not what God tells him. Rather, God looks at Isaiah and he asks a question, who or whom shall I send? And Isaiah looks at the God who's just called him and he says, here I am, Lord, send me. In the presence of God for a time, we are called to go. Isaiah was. But not only that, and I find this fascinating. In Matthew 17, you can flip back there um, just a few pages. In Matthew 17, we read of the transfiguration. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And in verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, they left the place where they were in front of the glory of Christ. They walked with Him down the hill. And they actually walked right into, at the bottom of the hill, they walked right into um, a man who, is, or they meet a man who's brought his boy to the disciples who remained at the bottom of the hill who had a demon. They immediately go from witnessing the transfigured Christ to coming down a hill and being thrown back into the world. Their task was to go. In God's presence in both Isaiah and in that passage in Matthew, they were told to go. Or they followed Jesus in going. Why? Because the primary goal of Christians right now on this earth is to go and make disciples. And Christ modeled that for His disciples as He walked them down the hill to be right back in the world where the world needed to know who Christ was. We read a little earlier Romans 10 14 and 15. And it just simply says this. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How will this world ever know about Christ unless we go out and tell them. And how many of us 
How many of us neglect and struggle with that? All of us. We were left here. Not taken up to heaven. We were left here in order to go. If primary responsibility was worship or fellowship or anything, we'd be in heaven right now, but it's not. We're to go. He says, go, therefore. And then there's three commands. We're go, make disciples. To go, to baptize, and to teach. Three commands given. Go, baptize, and to teach. And within that, those last two, the baptism and the teaching, we see the gospel clearly. Now, when you read this account, especially when you compare it with, with Mark uh, chapter 16, verses 14 through 16, I'll read those very quickly, even though there is some debate whether or not those are um, a part of the original canon of Scripture. They are helpful. But in Mark 16, 14 through, 15, or 14 through 16, it says, Afterward, he appeared, talking about Jesus, to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Mark says, Go and preach the gospel. In Luke 24, when we read of Christ's resurrection and we read of His command at the end to the church, Luke 24, 44 through 49 tells us, Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand I understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that, and here it is, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So in Matthew, He says, go, baptize, and teach. Why doesn't He mention the Gospel there? Why isn't it said, go and preach the Gospel or go and preach forgiveness of sins? What's the... What is being communicated here? And I do think that we have to get ourselves a little bit out of our, our mindset in the current culture, and we need to go back and think about what the first century church did. Immediately, when the first century church would come and when they would preach the gospel and there was faith and a person had been saved by Christ, in the first century church, they would baptize them almost immediately. They couldn't wait. And it's because baptism is an illustration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The first century church recognized, and I think rightly so, that the first time a believer shares the gospel with anybody, the first time they ever communicate the gospel with anybody effectively is when they illustrate what Christ did for them in baptism. The church will call them up and the church will say, You've been, you will, they'll baptize by immersion. We, we don't sprinkle here. By immersion, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. 
It shows people what Christ did. It shows people the Gospel. Understand this, that the number one time out of all of my years of teaching boys and girls and students, out of all the time that I've shared the Gospel with them, the number one time that there is questions about what is the Gospel, what or who is this Jesus, what do I need to be saved, the number one time that that happens is after a child sees baptism, they say, what was that? And then I get to share with them, or their parents get to share with them, that is an illustration of what Jesus did. He died and He rose again on the third day, and you can have life because of it. The first time a believer shares the Gospel is when they are baptized. And the church says, look, just like Christ was buried and rose again, they now have a new life. Acts 2 says, repent and be baptized. Ephesians 4 says that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Because they so closely identified baptism with preaching the gospel or communicating the gospel to believers and unbelievers alike. And and baptism was seen all the way through Acts in that way. When you get to Acts chapter 8, And you see Philip and he runs into the Ethiopian eunuch and he walks beside him and the eunuch is reading from the Scripture and the eunuch doesn't understand what he's reading and Philip says, do you understand what you are reading? He says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And Philip, Philip explains the Gospel of Jesus Christ to him and then the eunuch immediately looks down and he sees water and he says, look, there's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip goes down and baptizes him right there and immediately you see that not only was this person saved by Christ and by the Gospel of our Lord Jesus, but this person was commissioned immediately. Now you've got to tell people. You've got to share what Jesus did. And it was illustrated and it was visually seen through baptism. It always does strike me when I hear of people who profess to be Christians. They don't have a a desire to be baptized or they don't have an urgency there. Maybe we're not communicating correctly that you know you're telling the story of Jesus when you do that, right? Right? And there's a letter that was sent to, uh, to John MacArthur. He read it on uh, January 14th in 1990. And it's about a young boy named Mark who was in Australia. Now Mark is a quadriplegic, lives in a ward in a hospital, and he's going to live there the rest of his life. He's hooked to a respirator. He's also blind. At the time he read it, he was 17 years old. And somebody gave him some tapes, it was the 90s, of some of John MacArthur's sermons. He started listening to the tapes, and he wrote MacArthur a letter, said, I've heard your tapes, I know that if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, my sins will be forgiven, but I don't know what it means to believe. So MacArthur preached one Sunday morning a sermon on what it means to believe, sent the tape to him. He wrote back, said, I've received your tape, I know what it is to believe, I believe, and I am saved. A little while after that, MacArthur got another letter. This time it was from a pastor of a local church that's been ministering to him. And 
the letter goes like this. A few weeks ago now, Mark volunteered to me that he was thinking about asking for baptism. He admitted he still had some doubts, but queried, is it all right to be baptized if you just want to be obedient to the Lord? That desire to be obedient to the Lord became a deep conviction. In checking with the doctor about the possibilities, the doctor observed that Mark could not be dunked without some risk. His connection to his breathing machine is made through a sleeve that fits a little loosely in his throat through his Adam's apple. Mark balked at first, but as he prayed, he decided he would accept the risk if he could be baptized in the normal way. I'd explained a plan B to him, which would have been uh, the old Mennonite way of pouring. I've never done this way, but would have if there was no other way. On the day, we met at the hospital swimming pool with three others who wanted to be baptized and most of the folk from our church. Mark's family, who don't attend services anywhere, were also there. Because Mark can't speak very loudly and not at all without the breathing machine, one of the fellows from the church brought a PA system along. We took Mark's testimony from his wheelchair. It was very simple but sweet. He thanked the Lord for giving him or for forgiving him of his sins and declared that he wants to follow the Lord so he can serve him with his life. The actual baptism was quite an ordeal. The doctor, a Roman Catholic, suggested we let Mark into the water on a sheet. Because of Mark's long-term illness, his bones are very brittle. One of his legs fractured earlier this year when he was simply lifted into his bath. The fellows who visit him and one of the elders, Mark admires, were in the water to help him. The doctor and Mark's father lifted Mark out of his chair and laid him at the water's edge. Then the doctor unhooked Mark's breathing machine. Two of the fellows in the water gripped one side of the sheet and the doctor and Mark's dad handed the other side of the sheet to the two others who helped. In the water, I had to use one hand to block off the open air tube in his throat and use the other to hold his nose and push him under. With some quick and considerable efforts, because his limp body floats naturally, we got him under. Then we reversed the process and the doctor quickly hooked up the machine again. It made none of its warning signals. If water had gotten into his lungs, it would have sensed it immediately and Mark would have been hustled off for a medical emergency. We all breathed a sigh of relief and thanks. The whole procedure reminded us of the paralytic who was lowered through the hole in the roof on a blanket. This time, however, the man on the sheet didn't have to rely on the faith of his friends. He had his own testimony to give. It was amazing that the hospital was so cooperative. They could have been very difficult if they had wanted to be, but... The day I went to see them about it, I was referred to a deputy instead of the head man. This deputy just happened to be a Baptist. He has Baptists in very strategic places. And we received the help we had hoped for. Thanks so much for your support letters, prayers, and encouragement. Mark continues to listen to the stacks of your tapes and is sharing them with others in the fellowship. This has proven to be very beneficial to everyone. Just one more thing, Mark wanted me to share these things with you. He is personally very grateful for your service to him through the tapes and the books. Next year, he will begin to study theology by correspondence and hopes to add more and more to his faith. I was a young man 
who had every reason in the world to say, I'll skip out on proclaiming the gospel through seeing baptism. And yet this young man said, no, 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 I I want to proclaim the gospel. I want to see that Christ was buried, that He rose again on the third day, and I have life, life, because of this resurrected Savior. And so we see, we see that the church understood rightly that if you are going to be called a believer, you must be about the business of going, telling the gospel. And he says it here, going, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know it was a different baptism than what John gave. John didn't do it in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. His was a spirit, uh, a baptism of repentance. Ours is a, a baptism of regeneration. Go, baptize, share the gospel, and teach. Mark wasn't finished when he was baptized. Mark wasn't finished when he had been finished being dunked with all the doctors and nurses around. He wanted to learn. He wanted to be taught. Why? Because he knew it was vital it was important for him to be able to continue to share the news about the one who had saved him. We've got the gathering, the going, the gospel, and finally, the guide. After this commission, the ascension is going to occur and Pentecost will happen and next week Drew will talk with, with us. He'll open the Word and we'll hear about the ascension. The week after that, we'll hear from Brad, who will open up the Scripture and we'll hear about Pentecost. So immediately, you've got the ascension and Pentecost. Good times are about to come for the church, but in a very short time, persecution will begin for the church. Stephen is martyred. Acts 7 tells us that story. There are threats against the church. All the apostles are killed. In fact, Paul uh, and Peter were likely killed in the first wave of persecution in the 60s. But wait a minute. I'm sure the church thought, "I, I thought that here at the end we were given this command to go, to baptize, to teach. And Jesus said that He'd be with us always even to the end of the age. I've been teaching through the book of Revelation with the students it struck me as I've been teaching through it that the Apostle John who wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ here at the end, he had suffered intense persecution and Christ was with him. And I want you to see how he sees the guide even in the midst of all of this persecution. In Revelation chapter 1, Verses 9 through 20, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus. He had been exiled there. He was in prison there. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. 
And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his waist. This is Christ. In his vision, he sees Christ standing among these golden lampstands. And we find out, when we skip down to verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And John turns around and he sees Christ in this vision beautifully, miraculously there in the midst of the churches, tending to the lights that He has put in this dark world. Christ has not left them. Christ was there. And we see in a dramatic vision to John the teaching that Jesus gave them, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And what is He doing? He's leading His church. He's guiding His church. He's preparing His church so that we'll share the good news of the gospel, so that we will gather together, so that we will go, so that we will tell people the truth, the reality of who Christ is, of what He has accomplished for us, so that we can do our primary responsibility. And understand, if you go, if you walk out these doors, and if you actually do What Christ has called you to do, you don't go alone. Christ is there with you. He's guiding. He's directing. He's there in the midst of you. And it doesn't matter what trial you face. It doesn't matter what persecution you come up against. Christ is there. He has not abandoned you. And what's more, Christ has given us this gospel message the reality of the resurrection that silences scoffers. That assures us of the work of Christ and the reality of what He has accomplished. So church, you've just heard the Great Commission. None of us in here are among the 51%. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? We've gathered. Now go! Now tell the Gospel! And do it in the power and authority that Christ has risen from the grave. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love You and oh, how we thank You for the reality of the resurrection of Your Son. God, I ask that Father, this time we've spent together in Your Word, this time we've spent together looking at the primary responsibility that You've given us, the very reason we are left here in this world, Our task is to go and to tell. I pray that you would make us uncomfortable even sitting here if we don't go and we don't tell. 
Father, create within our churches, not just this one, but all across the nation, a desire, a passion to share, to evangelize, to preach the Gospel wherever we go. It's in Your Son's name, Jesus, I ask these things and for His sake. Amen.